Book One, Chapter One of The Cinema Murder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Cinema Murder by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Book One, Chapter One. With a somewhat prolonged grinding of the brakes and an unnecessary amount of fuss in the way of letting off steam, the afternoon train from London came to a standstill in the station at Detton Magna. An elderly porter, putting on his coat as he came, issued with the dogged aid of one bound by custom to perform a hopeless mission from the small red-brick lamp-room. The station-master, occupying a position of vantage in front of the shed which enclosed the booking-office, looked up and down the lifeless row of closed and streaming windows, with an expectancy dulled by daily disappointment, for the passengers who seldom alighted. On this occasion no records were broken. A solitary young man stepped out onto the wet and flinty platform, handed over the half of a third-class ticket from London, passed through the two open doors, and commenced to climb the long ascent which led into the town. He wore no overcoat, and for protection against the inclement weather he was able only to turn up the collar of his well-worn blue serge coat. The damp of a ceaselessly wet day seemed to have laid its cheerless pall upon the whole exceedingly ugly landscape. The hedges, blackened with smuts from the colliery on the other side of the slope, were dripping also with raindrops. The road, flinty and light gray in color, was greasy with repellent-looking mud. There were puddles even in the asphalt-covered pathway which he trod. On either side of him stretched the shrunken, unpastoral-looking fields of an industrial neighborhood. The town village which stretched up the hillside before him presented scarcely a single redeeming feature. The small, gray stone houses, hard and unadorned, were interrupted at intervals by rows of brand-new red-brick cottages. In the background were the tall chimneys of several factories. On the left, a colliery shaft raised its smoke-blackened finger to the lowering clouds. After his first glance around at these familiar and unlovely objects, Philip Romilly walked with his head a little thrown back, his eyes lifted as though with intent to the melancholy and watery skies. He was a young man, well above medium height, slim, almost inclined to be angular, yet with a good carriage, notwithstanding a stoop which seemed more the result of an habitual depression than occasioned by any physical weakness. His features were large, his mouth querulous, a little discontented, his eyes filled with the light of a silent and rebellious bitterness which seemed somehow to have found a more or less permanent abode in his face. His clothes, although they were neat, had seen better days. He was ungloved, and he carried under his arm a small parcel, which appeared to contain a book carefully done up in brown paper. As he reached the outskirts of the village he slackened his pace. Standing a little way back from the road, from which they were separated by an ugly, graveled playground, were the familiar school buildings, with the usual inscription carved in stone above the door. He laid his hand upon the wooden gate and paused. From inside he could catch the drone of children's voices. He glanced at his watch. It was barely twenty minutes past four. For a moment he hesitated. Then he strolled on, and turning at the gate of an adjoining cottage, the nearest to the schools of a little unlovely row, he tried the latch, found it yield to his touch, and stepped inside. He closed the door behind him and turned with a little weary sigh of content towards a large, easy chair drawn up in front of the fire. For a single moment he seemed about to throw himself into its depths, 
his long fingers, indeed a little blue with the cold, seemed already on their way towards the genial warmth of the flames. Then he stopped short. He stood perfectly still in an attitude of arrested motion, his eyes wonderingly at first, and then with a strange, unanalyzable expression, seeming to embark upon a lengthened, a scrupulous, and almost horrified estimate of his surroundings. To the ordinary observer there would have been nothing remarkable in the appearance of the little room, save its entirely unexpected air of luxury and refinement. There was a small Chippendale sideboard against the wall, a round, gate-legged table on which stood a blue china bowl filled with pink roses, a couple of luxurious easy-chairs, some old prints upon the wall. On the sideboard was a basket, as yet unpacked, filled with hothouse fruit, and on a low settee by the side of one of the easy-chairs were a little pile of reviews, several volumes of poetry, and a couple of library books. In the center of the mantelpiece was a photograph, the photograph of a man a little older, perhaps, than this newly-arrived visitor, with rounder face, dressed in country tweeds, a flower in his buttonhole, the picture of a prosperous man, yet with a curious, almost disturbing likeness to the pale, over-nervous, loose-framed youth whose eye had been attracted by its presence, and who was gazing at it spellbound. "'Douglas,' he muttered. "'Douglas!' He flung his hat upon the table, and for a moment his hand rested upon his forehead. He was confronted by a mystery which baffled him, a mystery whose sinister possibilities were slowly framing themselves in his mind. While he stood there he was suddenly conscious of the sound of the opening gate, brisk footsteps up the tiled way, the soft whirl of a woman's skirt. The latch was raised, the door opened and closed. The newcomer stood upon the threshold, gazing at him. "'Philip!' she exclaimed. "'Why, Philip!' There was a curious change in the girl's tone, from almost glad welcome to a note of abrupt fear in that last pronouncement of his name. She stood looking at him, the victim, apparently, of so many emotions that there was nothing definite to be drawn either from her tone or expression. She was a young woman of medium height and slim, delicate figure, attractive, with large, discontented mouth, full, clear eyes, and a wealth of dark brown hair. She was very simply dressed, and yet in a manner which scarcely suggested the schoolteacher. To the man who confronted her, his left hand gripping the mantelpiece, his eyes filled with a flaming jealousy, there was something entirely new in the hang of her well-cut skirt, the soft coloring of her low-necked blouse, the greater animation of her piquant face with its somewhat dazzling complexion. His hand flashed out towards her as he asked his question, "'What does it mean, Beatrice?' She showed signs of recovering herself. With a little shrug of the shoulders, she turned towards the door which led into an inner room. "'Let me get you some tea, Philip,' she begged. "'You look so cold and wet.' "'Stay here, please,' he insisted. She paused reluctantly. There was a curious lack of anything peremptory in his manner, yet somehow, although she would have given the world to have passed for a few moments into the shelter of the little kitchen beyond, she was impelled to do as he bade her. "'Don't be silly, Philip,' she said petulantly. "'You know you want some tea, and so do I. "'Sit down, please, and make yourself comfortable. "'Why didn't you let me know you were coming?' "'Perhaps it would have been better,' he agreed quietly. "'However, since I am here, answer my question.' She drew a little breath. After all, although she was lacking in any real strength of character, she was filled with a certain compensatory doggedness. His challenge was there to be faced. There was no way out of it. She would have lied willingly enough, 
but for the sheer futility of falsehood. She commenced the task of bracing herself for the struggle. "'You had better,' she said, "'frame your question a little more exactly. I will then try to answer it.' He was stung by her altered demeanor, embarrassed by an avalanche of words. A hundred questions were burning upon his lips. It was by a great effort of self-control that he remained coherent. "'The last time I visited you,' he began, "'was three months ago. Your cottage then was furnished as one would expect it to be furnished. You had a deal dresser, a deal table, one rather hard, easy chair, and a very old wicker one. You had, if I remember rightly, a strip of linoleum upon the floor and a single rug. Your flowers were from the hedges, and your fruit from one apple tree in the garden behind. Your clothes—am I mistaken about your clothes, or are you dressed more expensively? I am dressed more expensively," she admitted. "'You and I both know the value of these things,' he went on with a little sweep of the hand. "'We both know the value of them because we were once accustomed to them, because we have both since experienced the passionate craving for them, or the things they represent. Chippendale furniture, a turkey carpet, roses in January, hothouse fruit, Bartolozzi prints, do not march with an income of fifty pounds a year.' "'They do not,' she assented equably. "'All the things which you see here and which you have mentioned are presents.' His forefinger shot out with a sudden vigor towards the photograph. "'From him?' "'From Douglas,' she admitted. "'From your cousin.' He took the photograph into his hand, looked at it for a moment, and dashed it into the grate. The glass of the frame was shivered into a hundred pieces. The girl only shrugged her shoulders. She was holding herself in reserve.' As for him, his eyes were hot. There was a dry choking in his throat. He had passed through many weary and depressed days, struggling always against the grinding monotony of life and his surroundings. Now, for the first time, he felt there was something worse. "'What does it mean?' he asked once more. She seemed almost to dilate as she answered him. Her feet were firmly planted upon the ground. There was a new look in her face, a look of decision. She was more or less a coward, but she felt no fear. She even leaned a little towards him and looked him in the face. "'It means,' she pronounced slowly, "'exactly what it seems to mean.' The words conveyed horrible things to him, but he was speechless. He could only wait. "'You and I, Philip,' she continued, have been, well, I suppose we should call it engaged, for three years. During those three years I have earned, by disgusting and wearisome labor, just enough to keep me alive in a world which has had nothing to offer me but ugliness and discomfort and misery. You, as you admitted last time we met, have done no better. You have lived in a garret and gone often hungry to bed. For three years this has been going on. All that time I have waited for you to bring something human, something reasonable, something warm into my life, and you have failed. I have passed in those three years from twenty-three to twenty-six. In three more I shall be in my thirtieth year, that is to say, the best time of my life will have passed. You see, I have been thinking, and I have had enough. He stood quite dumb. The girl's newly revealed personality seemed to fill the room. He felt crowded out. 
She was, at that stage, absolutely mistress of the situation. She passed him carelessly by, flung herself into the easy chair and crossed her legs. As though he were looking at some person in another world, he realized that she was wearing shoes of a shapely cut and silk stockings. Our engagement, she went on, was at first the dearest thing in life to me. It could have been the most wonderful thing in life. I am only an ordinary person with an ordinary character, but I have the capacity to love unselfishly, and I am at heart as faithful and as good as any other woman. But there is my birthright. I have had three years of sordid and utterly miserable life, teaching squalid, dirty, unlovable children things they had much better not know. I have lived here, here in Detton Magna, among the smuts and the mists, where the flowers seem withered and the meadows are stony, where the people are hard and coarse as their ugly houses, where virtue is ugly and vice is ugly and living is ugly and death is fearsome. And now you see what I have chosen, not in a moment's folly, mind, because I am not foolish, not in a moment's passion, either, because until now the only real feeling I have had in life was for you. But I have chosen, and I hold to my choice. They won't let you stay here, he muttered. They needn't, she answered calmly. There are other ways in which I can at least earn as much as the miserable pittance doled out to me here. I have avoided even considering them before. Shall I tell you why? Because I didn't want to face the temptation they might bring with them. I always knew what would happen if escape became hopeless. It's the ugliness I can't stand, the ugliness of cheap food, cheap clothing, uncomfortable furniture, coarse voices, coarse friends, if I would have them. How do you suppose I have lived here these last three years, a teacher in the national schools? Look up and down this long, dreary street at the names above the shops, at the villas in which the tradespeople live, and ask yourself where my friends were to come from. The clergyman, perhaps? He is over seventy, a widower, and he never comes near the place. Why, I'd have been content to have been patronized if there had been anyone here to do it who wore the right sort of clothes and said the right sort of thing in the right tone. But the others, well, that's done with. He remained curiously dumb. His eyes were fixed upon the fragments of the photograph in the grate. In a corner of the room an old-fashioned clock ticked wheezily. A lump of coal fell out on the hearth, which she replaced mechanically with her foot. His silence seemed to irritate and perplex her. She looked away from him, drew her chair a little closer to the fire, and sat with her head resting upon her hands. Her tone had become almost meditative. "'I knew that this would come one day,' she went on. "'Why don't you speak and get it over? Are you waiting to clothe your phrases? Are you afraid of the naked words? I'm not. Let me hear them.' Don't be more melodramatic than you can help, because, as you know, I am cursed with a sense of humor, but don't stand there saying nothing. He raised his eyes and looked at her in silence, an alternative which she found it hard to endure. Then, after a moment's shivering recoil into her chair, she sprang to her feet. Listen, she cried passionately, I don't care what you think. I tell you that if you were really a man, if you had a man's heart in your body, you'd have sinned yourself before now robbed someone, murdered them, torn the things that make life from the fate that refuses to give them. What is it they pay you? She went on contemptuously at that miserable art school of yours. Sixty pounds a year? How much do you get to eat and drink out of that? What sort of clothes have you to wear? Are you content? 
Yet even you have been better off than I. You have always your chance. Your play may be accepted or your stories published. I haven't even that forlorn hope. But even you, Philip, may wait too long. There are too many laws nowadays for life to be lived naturally. If I were a man, a man like you, I'd break them. Her taunts apparently moved him no more than the inner tragedy which her words had revealed. He did not for one moment give any sign of abandoning the unnatural calm which seemed to have descended upon him. He took up his hat from the table and thrust the little brown paper parcel which he had been carrying into his pocket. His eyes, for a single moment, met the challenge of hers, and again she was conscious of some nameless, inexplicable fear. Perhaps, he said as he turned away, I may do that. His hand was upon the latch before she realized that he was actually going. She sprang to her feet. Abuse, scorn, upbraidings, even violence. She had been prepared for all of these. There was something about this self-restraint, however, this strange, brooding silence, which terrified her more than anything she could have imagined. Philip! she shrieked. You're not going. You're not going like this. You haven't said anything. He closed the door with his firm fingers. Her knees trembled, and she was conscious of an unexpected weakness. She abandoned her first intention of following him and stood before the window, holding tightly to the sash. He had reached the gate now and paused for a moment, looking up the long, windy street. Then he crossed to the other side of the road, stepped over a stile, and disappeared, walking without haste, with firm st walking without haste, with firm footsteps along a cindered path which bordered the sluggish-looking canal. He had come and gone, and she knew what fear was. End of Book One, Chapter One.